Hello, I'm Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. Welcome to the Nuffield Summit, where we're holding a BMJ breakfast roundtable in Wooden House in Surrey. The NHS is all about its people. Across the UK, it employs 1.5 million people, over 200,000 doctors, 55,000 of them in training. And many of them are in their late 20s or early 30s, a de- demographic often described as millennials. At the moment, there are some reasons for special concern about the NHS's workforce. The junior doctor's contract dispute brought many concerns about well-being and morale to wider attention. There is low morale in many specialties. The NHS is facing significant problems around recruitment and retention. It's losing thousands of nurses a year, uh, with many suffering from mental health problems. A thousand fewer GPs this year than last, with 12% vacancy rates in general practice. And in some specialties, more than a quarter of training posts are unfilled. Results from a BMA survey released this week show that most trainees are now taking a break of some sort in their training. And the survey shows junior doctors value their work-life balance and wanted greater flexibility. The Bauer-Garber case has raised real concerns in the profession about how valued and supported doctors are, especially when they're working in challenging conditions. And this week, the BMJ has led with the story of a group of junior doctors who are taking their trust to court, arguing that they did not receive breaks they were entitled to. So, how good is the NHS as an employer? With me round the table are five doctors and other health observers. Um, And I'll ask each of you to introduce yourself, if I may, and then we'll begin the conversation. So, Candace. Good morning. I'm Candace Imerson. I'm Director of Policy at the Nuffield Trust. Clifford. Uh, I have sort of three hats. I'm Clifford Mann. I'm an emergency physician in Taunton, Somerset. I was the president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine until two years ago, and I'm currently National Clinical Advisor to NHS England. Nishma. Uh, I'm a GP trainee in Cambridge and part-time clinical fellow at NHS England and a millennial. Claire. Um, I'm Claire Lima. I'm a consultant general paediatrician. And Bob. Hi. Uh, hello, morning. Bob Faber, general paediatrician. Great. So we're slightly heavy on the paediatricians, but we have got a millennial around the table, which is <laughs> wonderful. So um, maybe I should start then with Nishma and others can join in. What would you say are the main reasons for the low morale and low retention <laughs> And are they really much worse than in the past? Um, I suppose I didn't know what the past was like, so I can't <laughs> particularly make a comparison. Um, what it's like at the moment, I think, I think morale is, does feel low uh, on the ground. I think, for me, it comes down to the fact that most junior doctors don't particularly feel valued in the jobs that they're doing. I think that the NHS doesn't do the H in HR very well. We do the R because we know that we're an immense resource because every time you try and take annual leave, you're reminded of that. Um, but, but the H bit is just missing for me. And I don't think it necessarily comes down to kind of immense cost. You know, we know that we've got shortages on the front line. I think it comes down to behaviours, how you're treated and how you're made to feel. Um, and we shouldn't underestimate the value of that. But you know who your bosses do. Do you feel part of a team? Um, so I'm quite lucky because I'm in general practice now and I think you very much do know who your boss is it's a very small team usually but even when I was working in hospitals um, it, it varied I think the places where I was made to feel part of the team uh, the sort of morale was 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 much higher definitely so we've sort of lost the firm structure but I don't think that that doesn't mean you can't still recreate that feeling if you try hard enough 
Claire, you run a team of mm. junior doctors and nurses. So I think it's all about exactly that, recreating that sense of team, because that's crucial to managing adversity. And you can do it in all sorts of ways. But I, I think one of the crucial things is having really, really honest, open conversations with trainees. And that means conversations about what the job as a consultant actually involves, really showing people, getting them to walk with you, shadow you, spend time with you. <coughs> but also listening to them, talking to them, finding out what kind of things that interest them, what they do outside medicine, what their hopes and aspirations are, and really supporting them. And whether that means baking cakes or junior doctor induction drinks in the evening, it just means a little bit more effort and a little bit more understanding. As Nishma was saying, that these are people and they contribute a huge amount and they deserve something in return. Clifford, how does it work in emergency medicine? Um, could it work better? <laughs> it could definitely work better, and uh, I would agree with all the comments that the people previously have said, but um, I think in uh, specialties like emergency medicine, as I said yesterday, one of the key problems is the mismatch between the workload and the, uh, the resource to uh, attend to that workload, from a, both a medical and a nursing point of view, in fact. We also know that there's huge variety around the country, so... For example, a hospital in central Manchester has over 25 consultants, and a hospital just three miles north of it that sees the same number of patients has two consultants. So if you're a trainee in the second hospital, the amount of support you can get from your consultant team is going to be significantly diminished. And Bob, what's your view on this? Well, I guess so. Pulling together a few of the threads, I mean, I think it, it's very, very patchy. Um, it's definitely a very real problem, and I think being really brutal, we have fundamentally failed to pay enough attention to people. Um, a lot of them, if you think over the last decade, the measures, the focus of so much of what we've done within the health service does not really include people. They're, they're a, a resource, uh, as Nish was saying earlier. And um, we get stuck behind the structural and technical problems that sit behind it. So working time directive, which has all sorts of very serious and important implications on this, but it sort of gets the wholesale blame and people shrug their shoulders, oh, I can't do anything about that, so we might as well give up on worrying about people. That's the, I'm sort of being a bit strong about it, but that that, that attitude uh, pertains, and so you get into these vicious cycles where the role modelling starts to become. So you have tired and fatigued trainers and leaders and senior nurses and senior doctors who start, who role model that. And so the conversations around careers, the sort of things that Nish and Claire were talking about just stop happening. And Candy, so this is often presented as um, just about resourcing uh, the numbers. Have we got enough staff on, on the ground? Is, is it that or more than that? Well, I think as Cliff alluded to, there are clearly places where there is a fundamental mismatch. And also you asked about the longer term trends. The longer term trend is that people are being asked to do more. We haven't expanded the workforce at the rate that the work has expanded. And also the work has got more complex and more difficult. And so actually what people are being presented with presents them with harder and harder choices. And I think some of the um, when you look at the evidence around burnout, which I think is a really significant issue for young doctors, um, a lot of it is to do with being presented with situations that you find at your core very difficult. They're, they're challenging your values as a person. And we are asking day in, day out clinicians to make decisions which are challenging their values. And I think that is something we absolutely need to pay attention to. 
So uh, is there an issue of, 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 on one hand, needing more doctors, needing more nurses um, in order to just simply reduce that, that stress and extra complexity? Would that do, would that do a, a great deal? It would health? help, but my own observation would be that we haven't thought deeply enough about the job design and actually you have um, highly intelligent, able people that you're often asking to do very menial work um, and we really haven't got that right and we need to think much more sensibly about it and alongside that comes the way in which roles fit into teams and the support that we were hearing about earlier. And how have we got to this that we've actually um, lost the plot so badly <laughs> that, that teams and, and management structures are, are ignored or have de- deteriorated so badly? Well, I think one of the problems is we seem to have replaced culture with process. And we are absolutely obsessed about process. Um, I've always much been more, much more interested in outcomes, frankly, and um, I'm more than happy to cut corners and... Um, and do all the sorts of things that I wouldn't be allowed to do if I was a trainee. Um, and I think that the obsession with process confines the, the inner spirit, if you like, of the trainee. They're not allowed to be imaginative, they're not allowed to be creative, they're not allowed to um, think outside the box, even though we talk about that all the time. The obsession with, you know, are the 18 necessary forms to get this person from this ward to that ward completed, even though that none of those forms will ever be read by anybody else. The IT systems, which are unbelievably laborious and frustrating, uh, all add up. Each one of those things on their own is fairly small, but incrementally we have built so many process steps. That's just the work. If you look at the training aspect of it, I mean, if I had to actually go through a training scheme now and complete the workplace-based assessments and all the other nonsense, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it. I mean, I have to sit there with GP trainees and acute common stern trainees, all of whom have a different e-learning portfolio, which I find almost impossible to navigate around. I'm forever losing the document we were working on 10 minutes ago because the system's crashed out. I find it immensely frustrating. And then me having to write that, yes, I've seen this trainee put a cannula in or do an arterial blood gas when they're an ST3 in emergency medicine, I think is an insult to me, it's an insult to them and of no value to the system. And it's yet another way in which we eroded the culture. So I think that we need to replace a lot of the processes with an understanding that if you get the culture right, outcomes will follow. And that's the most important thing. And indeed, where the, where the hotspots are, where things um, are better, one of the th- observations I would make is that people have managed to cut through what you've just described so that the leadership role is around guiding people through that is around saying look don't worry about that that's nonsense focus on this. And Nishma is that how it feels process over overwhelmingly um, taking up your mental space emotional space? I think sometimes I think Clifford's point about the e-portfolio is an interesting one Um, I think it sort of it depends how you use it it's almost like how we talk about the computer and the consultation between the patient and the doctor has become a barrier I think in the same way the computer sometimes become a barrier in the relationship between a trainer and a trainee and you sort of become focused around that rather than having a conversation which should be about you know how are you actually and how can I help in whatever you're trying to achieve and if you can use a computer there as a as a catalyst to start that conversation with the portfolio then fine but the problem is it's become the conversation. Candice, how do we change the culture? 
<laughs> I look to you. But you look to me. Well, I think it is at all levels of the organisation. Everyone has a responsibility for it. We of, we often, I mean, the, the default um, place to go is leadership and the board, and there is evidence, obviously, that that sets the tone. I, I fear within the NHS we have a cascading issue of a culture that starts right at the top of the NHS that isn't the culture that we would ideally want and then that feeds down. We have very high turnover of our senior leadership within organisations which means their capacity to set that culture is limited. I would say as a senior leadership team it would take years to really permeate through the whole organisation whereas as Bob was saying people who are closer to the face can actually set that culture there and then and to some degree insulate their people working with them from the deficiencies above them. Um, some, some juniors we hear from just would say that the NHS hasn't even got the basics right of, of being a competent employer. Uh, doctors are being, um, they don't know where they'll be working in a few weeks because rotors haven't been sorted out or, or, or um, and they're not able to take leave or they have to find their own cover, they're not being paid correctly and not knowing what they'll be paid or being allocated the wrong tax code. And uh, These are sort of issues which may sound very trivial but they're sort of things that whenever most of us employed in other organisations would think, well, this is a basic hygiene measure. Do, do people recognise that as a description and what, what more, what difference should be happening that, that would change that? No, that definitely rings bells. But again, I think there's obviously system problems. That shouldn't happen. And organisations should have enough focus on this that it doesn't happen. But again, I think it's about relationships, as Candice was saying, that can somehow nurture or support people against when that does happen. So if your junior doctor goes a full six months without telling you that they've been paid the wrong amount or their tax code is wrong, then you can't do anything to help them. Whereas if you have the kind of discussions where that comes up and you're able to then act on their behalf, that's a way of mitigating some of those problems which shouldn't be there in the first place. As a serial optimist, I'm here for the, on, on, on audio banging my head on the table because it's so, so frustrating and really upsetting that uh, it, it's such elementary mistakes and it's focused on a lack of focus that uh, organisations have. They're a migrant workforce. So rather than, and the sort of shrug of the shoulders and the exhaustion as a new group arrive, mm. organisational exhaustion rather than a sense delight of optimism and, and delight and welcome and wow, we've got your energy and actually you've got loads of great ideas from all sorts of other places. And that sort of organisational psychological state, it's it, many, in, in, in HR terms, it just sort of feels tiring and exhausting and a hassle mm. and, and and that's why I think we get this lack of focus and emphasis so it clearly has a complexity that's perhaps more complex than people are coming for the next 10 years but you know they get a chance to practice it every six months mm. um, and uh, you know or less so mm. I, I think it's a it's a very very serious issue which then undermines actually lots of people who are trying quite hard mm. to uh, to really make it better. But countering that I think I think that, that's always been the case, Fiona. I mean, HR was rubbish when I was a junior doctor. That was almost in the previous millennium, but yes, rubbish and still rubbish. Nothing has really changed from that point of view. And to be fair, it's, I, I don't think it's, it's necessarily the fault of the hospital HR departments. I think the deaneries have to be um, held more accountable for some of these things. But I think what's different now is that we seem to have lost the esprit de corps that used to exist when I was a junior doctor. It was really rubbish on a one in two and a one in three. Um, 
but there was more a sort of band of brothers about it, which allowed you to get through. And I think the reason for that was, was twofold. A, a, we didn't have any social media. And the social media is great, and I use Twitter a lot, but it does tend to amplify the negative very quickly um, and, and rarely um, uh, celebrate the positive in such a powerful way. But probably more importantly is the, um, is the fact that when I was junior doctor, you thought, well, I've got to get through this really tough bit because then I will be either a principal in general practice or a consultant. And look, they have a fantastic life by comparison to me. They seem to earn a lot more money, they have a lot more time, and they seem to be generally happy with their lot. The difference now is if juniors look at many consultants and they think, well, they don't seem to have much money, uh, not in relative terms to the, uh, to, to the wider workforce of the country. Um, they certainly don't have much time. Um, and I'm not in a desperate hurry to go and join them. And that brings us to the, the core point about the millennial generation, if you like, that, we, that they are um, a group much more empowered and, and thinking that it's perfectly reasonable to, to have a flexible approach to your employment. You don't necessarily want to work with one employer for your whole life and you want more of a work-life balance. So how, how can the NHS and what is it doing um, to, to attract and retain people with that attitude to their work and their life? I think the first thing I'd say is that there's lots of stereotypes banded around about millennials which are tempting arguments but I don't think they're necessarily true so that kind of picture of us being politically apathetic, lazy, just driven by free food and beanbags is, is, is somewhat exaggerated. I think uh, that being said, there are differences between the current generation and the previous generation. Some of that is just a product of youth, as there would have been in the previous generation. I'm sure people sitting around this table were different uh, when they were a bit younger to how they are now. So it's not just, it's not just about being a millennial. Um, that being said, I think the way that we have grown up has been shaped significantly by technology. Um, and because in all the other aspects of our lives, we have so much autonomy, we can tweak and customise and change everything and we can get everything instantly. That sense of expectation is creeping into our work life. I think not unreasonably so. It's almost like um, sort of the rest of our lives have pinched off like the Galapagos and are evolving rapidly and we're stuck. Our work life is the mainland that should be ca catching up and it just isn't. Um, and I don't, I think we do want a better work-life balance. I don't think many people in the current generation would resent us for saying that. And I haven't seen that the, the current system has got a plan to keep up with those expectations rather than blaming us we've got to learn to adapt to a generation that will have and does have a different set of cultural norms and and frankly the nhs is going to have to adapt to that if it wants to retain its workshop yeah and as nish was talking it makes me think about the in a sense sort of broadening a little bit the, the multiple different generations we've got and there's some you know, interesting bits of work talking around you know five generations across the NHS and and uh, you know with the millennials increasingly not necessarily being the the sort of youngest end of it I'm really interested in the interplay between different groups it was a we're, it's not the topic of the conversation but uh, the the, the um, colleagues who are right up at the senior end of their careers I think there's a really interesting bit about pairing up um, 
the role of mentoring um, in this story. We've got to get over the uh, junior doctors these days dot 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 um, mm -hmm. opener to sentences that generally sort of kills any form of sensible discussion and uh, around that. So I think your your call for to say you know we, this is real. We've absolutely got to learn to try and adapt. And I think thinking of, thinking of it across the different generations and getting more honesty into the conversation. So I think uh, you know the whole the workforce planning story. Um, so often just sort of lacks a real honesty around this. Um, it's a, and it, it's such a difficult problem. We could do with being a bit more honest and open with each other around it all. And I would totally pick up on that point. And as somebody at the other end of their career, I mean, I too am thinking that for my work going forward, I would like some work-life balance, thank you very much. And so actually there is a complex array of demands there and actually it speaks to me of employers genuinely understanding their workforce and I don't think we have had nearly enough curiosity about what our workforce want and need and how we can support them in that there's been a sense that you know they will come to us and they and in the NHS people do put in vast quantities of discretionary effort and employers have been able to be lazy employers because actually they had a lot of intrinsic motivation that was going on in the workforce and I think we're challenging that at the minute so um, uh, so I agree with everything I've said and just to sort of um, play the flip side of that coin though I do think that we need to make sure that we are being quite clear to young people what life in a healthcare system is going to be like, whether you are a nurse, a doctor, or a manager. And it's fine to have a work-life balance, but if for you a work-life balance is only working in the day and never working in the evening or weekend, you may have chosen the wrong profession. If you only want to work 20 hours a week, but you're prepared to do your share of evenings and weekends, that's fine. Now, I don't believe that most of the people that we are regarding as millennials have ever thought anything other than it would be hard work and they would stand up to the plate and do their fair share of it. But I think we mustn't lose sight of the fact that acute healthcare is a fundamentally different job and a fundamentally different work-life balance from people who might be going into industry, into law, into teaching, into many, many other professions. And we probably haven't been clear enough about that. And will the Bauer-Garber case, tragic in so many ways, change things, Claire? I think it already has changed things. I mean, I think you can you can feel amongst um, younger doctors a slight sense of of some of the the ground that they felt was solid has slightly become shaky, and they are challenged. Well, we were all challenged by some of the issues that it brings up around um, working in environments which are busy and challenging and covering, as Clifford said, for colleagues who aren't there and trying to work out what the brave and the right thing to do is. Do you carry on working? Do you talk to people? You know, what, what is the norm that's now acceptable? I think it's thrown up a lot of really difficult questions which we as a profession and individuals within hospitals are really grappling hard with and some of them are managing to find solutions that are better and some of them are really struggling with that. I think at a, at a time when the system felt shaky already and it felt that, you, you know, the things that we've already described around morale, um, 
it's been shaken significantly further and the question is now not looking backwards but going forwards how can we how can we start to rebuild that trust and for me it's probably going to come down to individual relationships between trainers and trainees and reassuring our trainees that you know if you make mistakes you, you should I think the biggest the richest source of our learning comes from our mistakes and if we don't keep hold of that we've lost something really important. So looking forward and, and um, with perhaps trying to be optimistic, and there is scope for optimism, as, as people have said, there are, there are centres of excellence, people really making making good shifts. What, what would be the vision that we would want the NHS to adopt, both at local level and, and at national level? Candace, can you help us formulate what that vision would be for a, for a, a sustainable, safe and effective and excellent workforce? So I think um, I would begin when Niche began with the H&HR. So we, we absolutely need to be excellent employers and um, we're, at, as a system, supporting people training in that. I think we need to think a lot more deeply about that training process. I think the disconnect that Cliff referred to between deaneries and organisations and the way that currently works is absolutely unhelpful. Um, and we need to take this very, very seriously. This is absolutely core business. As we all know, at boards, HR tends to be subordinate to finance, um, and it absolutely needs to be up there with finance, if actually not a more important agenda item. And who, who can make that happen? I mean, where does that, the responsibility for that sit? Well, a lot of that is within our own grasp as so many of these issues that we know about. Um, you know, we, we can do things for ourselves, but clearly broader action would be needed about the, the deanery, machinery, etc. Um, I think the professional bodies have a role in helping people understand how to be good trainers, how to support people through that process, setting the realistic expectations that others have, have described. There's, it, I, I totally agree with you, and I'd, I'd even take it further. I mean, it's it's much more important than the financial piece. This is hu this is human beings, so we have to tap into that people human piece, um, and we've just completely failed to pay attention to it. Um, I think through a lack of understanding of how important it is. I think there's a bit of a learnt helplessness that we don't quite know. It feels very difficult. They are these are real people who've got careers, who've got aspirations, um, who um, have worries and anxiety and I think the, the lack of focus on this for you know 10 plus years or, or, or longer is really starting to come home and we've got to shift into a really different gear very very quickly. And as a consultant yourself Bob do you feel that you the consultants listening to this might think well what can I do you know how yeah. how can I actually impact on this system? So I think you I think you can do masses around those that sort of reason you went into healthcare and all of the fantastic training we have around human interactions and you think we're incredibly skilled at um, listening to somebody at taking a history from them at uh, making a diagnosis um, around thinking about their whole life I'm talking about a doctor patient relationship that's not wholly different skill that's needed to thinking about other other colleagues and other members of the workforce the difficult bit is when you're feeling tired and a bit mm. done to by the system and it's all feeling too difficult you stop paying attention to that so I think as consultants as GPs as senior nurses we it's a totally core part of our role mm. and a key part you know almost the main part of our role mm. is to be an enabler for others I think um, I agree with what everybody said but um, we also need to think of the opportunities that, that are coming up 
So after the car crash of the junior doctor's contract dispute um, and the immense amount of damage to morale that was done through that, um, and I have to say, I don't think enough people have held the DDRB and NHS employers to account on the original um, edition of that contract, which then led on to all the problems. But be that as it may, there's going to be a new consultant contract sometime soon. There's one on a shelf somewhere. Uh, obviously, this isn't the ideal time to launch it, but there is a plan to do so. So why don't we give the profession the signals within the contract that people are taking the issues we've been talked about seriously? So the two things that would strike me as being immediately sensible are what they do in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and even Wales, which is afford people the opportunity to have a sabbatical or long service leave. So you do five years, 10 years in the NHS, you get two months paid study leave to go somewhere, learn something useful, bring it back to your department. It re-energizes the individual, re-energizes your department, is what high-performing companies do for their senior staff all the time. So why don't we do it? The second thing is it, the work-life balance for me. It's about if I... So last year I worked all or part of 22 weekends, okay? So that's fine, but what's not good to, is people say, well, you can have the money. Well, I don't really need the money. Um, not that I've handed the money back, but I don't really need it. Or they say, uh, well, you work at Sunday Cliff, so you can have Wednesday off. Well, that's no good because my children will be at school, my wife's at work, and I'll have a list of jobs. That for me is not. That for me is not quality time. <laughs> so, but the work-life balance is important, and if you're doing all those other hours, you're missing time with your family, your friends, the rest of it. So, why don't we link the amount of annual leave, pro rata, to the amount of evenings, nights, and weekends that people do? So, you have a single contract. It doesn't matter whether you're a dermatologist, a virologist, a paediatrician. But within the contract, it says you get your standard, whatever it is, 29 days annual leave a year. But pro rata, for every extra amount of evenings, nights or weekends you do, you get an uplift in your annual leave allowance. This would be extremely attractive, particularly to younger consultants. You've got two consultants married to each other with a young family. You've got to try and look after them all through the six or seven weeks of the summer holiday. If one or both of those parties is getting extra annual leave to make that easier, that improves their family life. That reduces the pressures and reduces the cost. A maximum of three weeks could be accrued, say, um, and that way you've got to find extra cover for three weeks of the year, not 52 weeks of the year. This, again, seems entirely equitable to me. It's not about being specialty-specific. It's not even being about medicine-specific. It could be true of any other part of the workforce in the NHS. But people seem to accept it's a good idea and then don't do anything about it. So my plea would be that if you can't put anything in the new consultant contract, which is what the current generation of trainees will be on within five years, then you will be sending a very negative message that you have failed to listen to the concerns around this table and the wider NHS um, staff groups, and that would be a massive opportunity. So who, this your plan sounds brilliant, Cliff. Who, who can make that happen? I mean, where, where does that sit? So, well, in order for that to happen, NHS employers have to agree with the BMA. So I have put this, when I was president of the college, I spoke to the BMA repeatedly. I spoke to NHS employers repeatedly. I spoke to the Secretary of State about this. I have spoken about this to just about anybody who's prepared to listen. <laughs> and everybody has said, yeah, it's fine, fine, fine. I've done nothing about it, have which is a classic Have you written about in the BMJ yet? <laughs> Sorry? Have you written about in the BMJ? And I've not been invited, well, but should I? Now the invitation is public. So that sounds interesting. Um, Nishman, what, what would you say is, is, does that sound like a, a, an attractive package? 
if one could have a consultant job or a GP senior partner job that allowed all of that? Yes, absolutely, it does. Um, so going back to your question about what I think we could do going forward, I think three things. The, the thing that Candice mentioned at the start, which I thought was quite interesting about how this starts from the top and having having worked in places like NHS England for a year, um, I very much can see that. And I think it's easy for us as millennials to kind of put the blame at the foot of consultants, but actually spending a moment to think about perhaps how they, they're feeling and the kind of pressures that they might be under. I think it does start from the top and it just dials up when you go further down. So how can we address that culture right, right from the top and those behaviours? Um, the second thing is this, the thing that Bob was meant talking about as, as human behaviours, as consultants actually, um, in general practice particularly, we talk a lot about eliciting ideas, concerns and expectations from our patients all of the time. Why do we not apply that same logic to our juniors and not necessarily acceding to all of those requests, but sometimes it's just about being listened to. Um, and the third thing I say is also there's some ownership on millennials as well. We can't expect everyone else to, to change for us and thinking about we're also role modelling every day for the people that are coming up behind us as medical students and if we don't feel like we're being treated in the way that we should, how can we make sure we're behaving in a way that we would like the next generation to behave? Okay. I think each of the clinicians around this table um, does work outside of their clinical world, so whether it's related to college work or advisory work or whether it's as, as in the kind of medical management role, um, I think that's something we don't talk about enough because I think that's also a route to this sense of fulfilment is it is much easier to give and give and give to the NHS if you're also doing other things that empower you and allow you to make changes and I think we those around this table have managed to accomplish it, but I think we need to talk and to allow others to have that same degree of flexibility because it is a way of sustaining you through, as Clifford has rightly said, what is proving to be a longer and longer career. Um, and that allows you to, to do more of one thing at one time and more of another at another time. Yeah, I guess my sort of final thoughts are really about the the intergenerational piece feels really important. Um, I think tackling this on its own is thinking we've got, you know, we've got a problem with millennials and and the, the, their world is changing. All of our world is is changing. And I think the risk of sort of picking off one group and uh, getting over focused on that potentially disengages others from it. And I think a lot of the solutions link up to each other. Um, and it could some of them could be really in quite a smart way. This is a lovely uh, example around uh, working late at night. So it's an example from uh, the intensive care unit in Birmingham where they're trying to grapple with this idea around how do you um, staff a unit through the middle of the night and actually the guys who are 63 on the rotor don't really want to be in there at three o'clock in the morning and indeed find it really really difficult and harder than the 36 year old consultant and so they use a sliding scale type mechanism around a rotor so when you first start on the rotor you are um, doing more out of hours and middle of the night type work um, but also some of the sort of compensatory rest that Clifford was talked about done in an imaginative way that may well fit in with the fact you've got young children who are in a nursery and school as you become more senior you might start to take on a bit more of a, a balanced role you might pick up the sort of management role that Claire's talking about and as you become more senior still you perhaps do more second on type on call which has a bit more of a mentoring role if things really got difficult you'd be coming in but you'd be doing things the crucial bit is everyone's signed up to the same rotor it's a bit like the same contract story uh, rather than this situation that we sometimes get where there's two or three tiers on a rotor and it's that sense of imagination we've got to get back into mm. 
Can I then ask you, taking the top and the bottom of the system, uh, your thoughts on what would you say to Simon Stevens that, that you know, he could do, uh, one or two major things he could do to really make a difference? And my other question would be, for a young person joining the NHS, what would you suggest that they do to make sure that they thrive and, and, and are able to, to really serve the population as they would like to do on coming into healthcare? Candace. So I suppose I'd pick out two um, things, which is I think the centre has to work much, much harder at getting alignment across the plethora of bodies that we have there. Um, He needs to model the behaviours that he wants to see in the organisation and, crucially, make sure that the people who work for him model those behaviours. Um, and it's it's H in all policies, sort of, so HR in all policies, making sure you've thought through the people implications of what it is you're doing and sort of sending the message that this is something that people need to take very, very seriously. At the minute, the system is sending the message, you've got to deliver the bottom line and you've got to deliver waiting list targets and four-hour targets. It isn't sending, you've got to care for our people as your number one thing. We can't care for patients if we don't care for staff. And and to someone coming in or just starting in the NHS? I am constantly struck by the huge, rich rewards to be got from working with patients. It is an incredible privilege and it is a career that offers people something that they will not get anywhere else and you need to hold on to that as being something that is made very visible. Um, so the thing I would say to Simon Stevens actually is that um, it's not his job to sort out the challenge of junior doctor recruitment. There are lots of other people in the organisation whose job description requires them to be more involved in that. His job is to fight the corner for the NHS and to make sure it's properly funded so Simon can carry on doing what Simon's doing I think actually. Um, For the people coming into the profession, I would argue, as uh, Claire was saying, that we need to tell them that the the deal is that for, in exchange for on occasions working very hard and long hours, uh, we will promote portfolio careers. Thank you. Um, I've, I've only, I think I've only got one thing for uh, for Simon Stevens, and that's picking up Candice's thing. It's around tone and the behaviour from the top. It's quite frankly way, way off the mark. It's nowhere near good enough. It has a massive, massive effect cascading down. It's very, very pervasive, and it goes very, very far. And it's a massive issue, and there's a complete blind spot that it's and not. What could he specifically do? I mean, well, I think it is about how the the behaviours that that come from you know Monday morning meetings and uh, the the way uh, the the top of the health service behave and it's interesting how you know Cliff I, I agree to an extent but straight away the word is around the fight you know this all this sort of uh, talk of, uh, of uh, that's right the sort of fist pumping fight around it go back to this this is a people endeavour this is human this has a societal piece and we we just fail to spot that and that cascades down in a really really terrible way the Junior Doctor piece for me is about really encouraging uh, and people on two things. One is to make connections and relationships. Some of those are going to be peer-based, so looking after each other, being generous to each other, being supportive of each other, and also finding uh, finding mentors, supporters, uh, people who can help guide, uh, who can help 
really see what a privilege it is. And I think that's the second piece. It's an extraordinary career. It still is. Uh, and it arguably even more so. There are so many amazing opportunities. Um, and we've got to get much more eloquent at really describing that. And I think those one-to-one -one, uh, sort of mentoring, supporting conversations, and that's a great space and place for people across the health service to put their time. So I sort of feel very strongly, you know, you can't do enough of uh, informal conversations with people, mentoring conversations with people. And there's lots of people around this table who will do that day and night uh, people can get in touch and have those conversations that is very key Claire so I think um, my thoughts on this are very much coloured by having been an inpatient recently for quite an extended period of time and, and now um, uh, an outpatient and I think I'd come back if I was talking to a junior doctor to having those experiences how much the little things matter and how much they really can contribute and how much they can bring to the patients but also to themselves through those interactions. You know the lovely junior doctor who um, came to me and admitted that maybe they hadn't ordered the right x-rays and I'd have to go back and have some really pelvic really uncomfortable pelvic x-rays done again that was really honest and then they came back and said actually they'd found the x-rays and they had ordered the right ones that's even harder to do particularly knowing that I'm a consultant um, but they did that and they did that in their charming wonderful way and they went away feeling like they'd done a good thing and from potentially a, a bad thing and I just think we sometimes lose that sense of this is an extraordinary profession that we're part of and we need to celebrate the little things and we need to encourage people to remember that when it comes to Simon Stevens, I guess, in addition to the things that people have said already, I would try and get a focus on some of the little things that really matter to people. So, you know, having contracts that aren't signed properly or aren't set up properly, rotors that people don't know, that's not something that he himself can do. But again, it comes down to what do you value? What are you talking about? What are you out there when you're meeting um, chief executives or other people in the health service, what are you saying is the thing that is important at the moment? Because unless there's a concerted effort, that's not going to change. Thank you. Nishma? Um, I think for Simon, I would say it's not, I don't think it necessarily comes down to just him, but echoing what Bob and Candace said about the, the tone that's set from the top is a really big thing for me that I've seen over the last year. Um, and it should be about how can how can he and people in positions like him remove the barriers around consultants and people further down so they can do the job that they want to do well? Um, I don't think many people, I'm quite optimistic, I don't think many consultants go out there trying to purposefully treat their juniors in a way that makes them unhappy or a way that impacts morale. I don't think they, they want to do that, but they just often have things coming from the top that we might not appreciate that means that they can't do that to the best of their ability. So what can we do to remove those barriers? Um, in terms of people entering the NHS um, at the start of their careers, a bit like me, I'd say um, it's, a, it's a fantastic profession to be a part of. Um, the, the biggest impact on my morale has probably been a feeling of, of being empowered to make things happen and to change things. And you can do that. And it might feel like doors are being shut in your face, but you'll find one if you push hard enough and look hard enough that will be open. And it'll often come down to a person that you'll find that will let you do that. And once you do that, that feeling of learned helplessness often disappears and you suddenly realise actually you can you can make things better even in your 20s and 30s you don't have to wait till you're at the top of the hierarchy to do that and the second thing I'd say is if you feel like we're losing the firm structure um, do something about it yourself you know encourage your colleagues to go out for a drink on a Friday night after work and talk about what's happened to you together get your consultants out you know have, have lunch with them you it doesn't all come down to how other people should behave towards you you can take some ownership as well. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed to all of you. And to those of you listening, please do send us your comments and thoughts. 
via rapid responses. Thank you very much.